Amen. Take a seat. Get your Bibles out, and if you would get those out. And before you open up your Bible, I'd like for you to just to bow your heads and pray with me and for me this morning. Lord Jesus, I need your help. Holy Spirit, would you strengthen me for the very purpose of edifying the body of Christ here this morning. Indeed, may we all be strengthened. Would you grant us a supernatural focus? I ask you to continue to do your work in our hearts and minds, opening them, softening them, to receive whatever it is that you have in mind for us, for we are yours. You are the potter, we are the clay. And once again, we are praying this, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. On November 25th, 2009, uh, Tiger Woods' life was forever changed. On that day, uh, the National Enquirer published a story alleging Tiger Woods was having an affair with a New York nightclub mistress or hostess, Rachel Yucatel. Uh, nearly a week later, on December 2nd, Us Weekly magazine published a cover story saying Los Angeles cocktail waitress Jamie Grubbs had a 31-month-long affair with Mr. Woods on January 24, 2010. Reports surfaced that Canadian Emma Rotherham is Woods' 19th mistress. And on February 19, 2010, Tiger Woods breaks his silence at a carefully orchestrated appearance at a Florida golf club, saying, I was unfaithful, I had affairs, I cheated, what I did was not acceptable. Does anyone ever remember watching that by chance or seeing that? Well, I don't need to introduce Tiger Woods to you, obviously, but on March 21st, 2010, in his first television interview since the scandal broke, Woods tells the Golf Channel he tried to stop having extramarital affairs but couldn't. And sadly, on August 23, 2010, Eileen Nordegren, his wife, and Tiger Woods finalized their divorce. They've been married since October of 2004. I'm bringing this up other than the fact it fits perfectly for this sermon we're about to discuss, but HBO, I don't know if you know this or not, just put out a new documentary entitled Tiger. I don't know if anyone here had watched it, um, I would recommend it. Um, I wanted to watch it, I turned it on, and it didn't take long before Mark was sitting next to me watching it, and then my wife was watching it back in the kitchen. I think most of the family was watching it. It's kind of riveting. The first part lasted about 90 minutes, the first part of the documentary, and it really just chronicles the life of Tiger Woods. I, I look at him in a different way now. As much as I liked him as an athlete of my generation, I understand more about his childhood and, and whatnot. But to say that I was captivated would be um, an understatement. I think we all were watching it. Uh, the end of part one lays a foundation for the affairs Tiger Woods would later commit that I assume will be analyzed in part two. And I want to read to you word for word what Joe Groman, Woods' family friend, and Dina Parr, Tiger Woods' first girlfriend, said about this part of Tiger's life. 
It's just Joe Groman. Now, if you don't know, Tiger Woods' father, Earl Woods, passed away a number of years ago, and they were very close. Earl Woods was known to be very unfaithful to his wife and Tiger's mom. And this is what Joe Groman is saying. He says, Earl Woods was great, a great, great dad, but I don't know how to smooth this one over, but I assure you that we were not the best role models when it came to honoring your marriage. I assure you, and this is, by the way, it's done in an interview format, so you're just looking at this Joe Groman. He says, whoa, this is a tough one. Hold on, give me a few seconds. I have to collect my thoughts. He is not gonna like this at all. Next thing you do in the documentary, you see Tiger Woods on a putting range, and in the background is a Winnebago, okay? It says, Earl had this little Winnebago, and we let him teach on the range, the driving range, that is, and teaching golf lessons. And he would somehow would teach very attractive blonde women, and I never figured out where he met these women. And after the lesson, they would go into the Winnebago for cocktails, and Tiger was at the course, and I was just as every bit as bad. For a long time, me and Earl were the two biggest male figures in his life, the two closest to him. You know, here I am chasing skirts and bringing them to the course, and he's seeing this. And I was married to at the time, and he's seeing this. To have that kind of access to this child's development and expose him to that, I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry, champ. Sorry. Dina Parr said this, I mean, any child having to witness that and know what's happening, it's not right. It's just not right. That made a huge impact on his life. When Tiger and I were still together, he would travel in the summer for tournaments with his dad, and he called me one time, and I'll never forget. He was sobbing on the phone uncontrollably. I couldn't even understand what he was saying. He was so upset. He finally caught his breath and said, my dad's out again. He met this girl and they're going out. The sound of Tiger's voice was so upsetting I wanted to crawl through the phone and take care of him. I've never heard somebody in my life so upset. And his dad, I don't think, really cared that he knew it. I think that also bothered him. Like, why would he not try and hide this from me? Why would he, why would you let me see this? Tiger's mom was a loyal, good mother, and he absolutely loved her. So there was an anger there with his dad, but he could never show it or express it. He had to keep that in, and it changed the relationship with his dad. And it appears that the documentary is trying to give the audience a foundation or understanding for why Tiger Woods had so many affairs. It was an acceptable behavior that was modeled for him as a child. And despite the fact that he had personally experienced or heard of his father's affairs, and he knew what his father was doing was wrong, Tiger still followed in his father's footsteps. Well, why? It wasn't because it was a behavior that was modeled for him by his father, because the issue runs much deeper. Tiger Woods, like all of us, has a heart problem. A wandering eye looks at a beautiful woman, 
A corrupt human heart desires her, and a depraved mind justifies the sin of adultery. And as we continue our sermon series, Counterculture, we come to this part of Jesus' sermon on the mount. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 5, 27 to 30. I think I have this verse up here if you don't have a Bible. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown to hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And up to this point in, our, in his first sermon, Jesus is trying to drive from the point to his audience that the standard for righteousness that they've been taught by the scribes and Pharisees was what? It was too low. They were taught that if they simply avoided the act that they were in good standing with God. Jesus comes along and says, God was never really concerned about the external act only. He is more concerned about the inside, the inner motive. And I'm gonna put that focus back where God always intended it to be, the heart. And so he picks out two illustrations to get his point across. You shall not murder, which, by the way, speaks to the sanctity of life. And you shall not commit adultery, which speaks to the sanctity of marriage. His words were eye-opening, to say the least, to his audience. He says, you're not righteous before God if you've ever been angry. He says, you're not righteous before God if you ever had the, the thought of adultery. And what he's trying to do is show them how really sinful they are. On the inside, in the heart, no matter what the outside behavior. Sin is not simply what you do, it's what you feel and think in your heart. But this point was lost to them. So we're gonna talk about this lost point. We're actually gonna dissect this passage in greater detail next week. When I was preparing this, I kind of discovered this and I wanted to take us through this to give you a, a little bit of a better understanding of what he is saying here from an Old Testament perspective. Because the better you know the Old Testament, the longer I preach, the more I realize how much I appreciate the New Testament. And quite frankly, most of us get our Old Testament from Sunday school when we were growing up, and we spend most of our adult lives just reading the New Testament. So, just listen, I'm gonna have you go, go to some verses, but just let's talk about a lost point. Or I guess I messed it up. Anyways, it doesn't matter, it's supposed to be a lost point. Anyways, I'm lost. <laughs> Let me show you what I mean by this. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were revealed by God to Moses. Do you know anyone what we call the first five books of the Old Testament? The Pentateuch, very good. Okay, it sounds like you should be in Lord of the Rings. Peregrine took, Pentateuch. 
okay? You bet you're running when she was here for that, right? But um, these books are also called what? I got you in this one, didn't I? The Law of Moses, or the Law, right? But you can also think of them, and I'd like for you to begin to think of these books as this. Watch this, it'll probably blow you away. The Gospel of Moses. The Gospel of Moses. Because what's the Gospel? Well, it's a, the Gospel is nothing more than a revelation directly received from God. Did not Moses directly receive these words from God? Yeah. In fact, Paul said this about his Gospel. Did you know this? Galatians 1, 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. So he has a gospel, a message. So the Pentateuch, or the law of Moses, or the gospel of Moses, are basically the heart or the core of the Old Testament. And the writings that follow the Pentateuch, and what are they? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What follows that? Joshua, Joshua, all the way down through the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. Okay, those are simply explanations of the standards of which God had laid down through Moses. You follow me so far? This is why you frankly find in the writings of the prophets phrases like, Moses said to you, or have you forgotten what Moses said? Because very early on, we're seeing a pattern God gives the basic definitions of what he requires through Moses. He elaborates on it in the Law and the Prophets, and guess what? Where does he fulfill it? In Jesus Christ. That's why he didn't change anything. He didn't have to. He only had to fulfill it. Now, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's the last of the five books of Moses, and as you might expect, it's, in this book, we have a summary of the law of God. Even by its name, Deuteronomy, and you get extra bonus points, does anybody know what that means? It comes from two Greek words. Second law. It means second law. So it's naturally a summation of the law of God. That's all it is. And as the book of Deuteronomy opens, what's happening to the people of Israel? What are they about to do? I.e., what's the next book of the, that follows it? Joshua. What does Joshua do? He leads the people into the promised land. So I've already go into the promised land, okay? And as they move into the land, God reminds them of all they need to know from the law of Moses, or from the gospel of Moses. In those laws, what does he do? Now, this is key. He's laying out the standards for living in his kingdom. Does that sound familiar? Is that what Jesus is doing? And those standards, of course, include the Ten Commandments. So to show you how important the book of Deuteronomy is, did you know that Jesus quoted more from Deuteronomy than any other Old Testament book? Did you know that the New Testament writers quote Deuteronomy more than they quote any other Old Testament book? So the summary of the entire Old Testament, and in fact, the summary of the entire Bible, is in Deuteronomy 6.5. So get out your Bibles. Go to Deuteronomy. You should know where that is. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
In one sense, this will make me look good, and Lord knows I need that, because I've been saying this to you from the very beginning. You'll recognize this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, throughout Deuteronomy, it gives examples of loving your neighbor, but it's specifically stated in Leviticus 19, 18. You just listen. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here you find, really, the consummation of all of God's truth. Now, Jesus combined these two verses and said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. So basically, when you say the law and prophets, what is he referring to? The law is what? First five books, and what's the prophets and the writing of the prophets? Joshua through Malachi. So the entire Old Testament depends upon what? These two commands, and what are they? Just listen to this, Matthew 22, 37 to 40. It's gonna be repetitive. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. See that? You follow me so far? Good. Now let's talk about our relationship of love. I want you to see from the Old Testament that God, from the very beginning, okay, was seeking a relationship with his people not based on the law. He was seeking a relationship based on what? I just read, we just read these verses, people. Love. It's a love relationship. Is that what you think when you think, when you read the Old Testament? You think of law. It was never law. It was the other L. It was always love. It was always love. God was always seeking a relationship based on love. And of course, in any relationship, love is the key. And so throughout all of Deuteronomy, you think you would find God saying, if he wants a love relationship, I want you to love me. I want a heart commitment. And we find Moses saying that throughout the book of Deuteronomy. In the very beginning, turn to, De well, we're there, Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Turn to Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. So in the beginning, he's saying it. In the middle of the book, Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Turn to Deuteronomy 30, 16, the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. What do you find? In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. Well, again, why is he saying all this stuff? Why is it repeated? And there are more verses in Deuteronomy that say this. Folks, because it is a relationship of love that God has always sought with man. He's always seeking a relationship of love. Now watch this. Before God ever gave the law, and when you think of the law, think of the Ten Commandments and all the statutes and all the rules and all the commandments and so on, 
he established a love relationship with Israel. Did you ever know that? He first loved Israel, and because he loved Israel, he redeemed Israel from physical bondage in Egypt. And it was only after the loving relationship and redemption that he gave them the law. You follow me so far? But the people of Israel, what did they do? They wrapped their identity and their entire identity in the fact that they had the law of Moses, the writings of the prophets, and it was that that made them special and unique. It was that that gave them that special relationship with God. But the truth of the matter is, the law was not the cause of the relationship. The law was the result of the relationship. So first we have the love relationship, followed by redemption, followed by the law. And it's the same pattern, folks, in the New Testament. Think this through with me. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ is that God desires a loving relationship with his children. So what does he do? He redeems us. Then he gives us the law, principles that govern our love relationship with him. Folks, this is why the scriptures say that we love him because he what? He first loved us, exactly. Our obedience to his laws demonstrate our love for him because God's always wanted us to love him from our hearts. Now, you're in Deuteronomy, go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Watch this. Go. I'll take you back there. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verses 12 and 13. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? What do I want? Now watch this. Old Testament, by the way, very beginning. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and what? You can say it. Love him. You see that? To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commending you today for your good. So what does God want from you? Well, the Israelites thought that God wanted them to keep the Ten Commandments. But look what God says before he even mentions his commandments. Fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and love him. Then you keep the Lord's commandments. <clears throat> God doesn't want people to simply keep a bunch of external commandments, is really what I'm getting at. To go through the motions. Does any wife want a husband? That simply just goes through the motions with you? No. <clears throat> God wants a people who love him from the inside. This is why Jesus says it's not an issue that you simply don't murder. It's not an issue that you simply don't commit adultery. The issue is what's in your heart. And it's been that way from the very beginning. Yet when you see this, you'll miss the standard, which is we do and the Israelites did. The Old Testament 
God's standard is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Now, as you would expect, the people in the Old Testament couldn't meet that standard. And that's exactly what he wanted them to understand. When they kept falling short of that standard, what would happen? No. They'd be convicted, they'd feel guilt, but because God loves them, I don't want you to be frustrated in your guilt. So he gave them not only standards, but he gave them a system to deal with their inability to keep it. And what was that system? A sacrificial system. Now, the sacrificial system didn't make men right with God. It simply pointed out that God can only make it right with men. And, of course, here's how it worked in the Old Testament. God gave a standard. The standard's a relationship of love. Men couldn't fulfill all that standard required. So they were guilty and convicted of sin. And in order to deal with that, God provided a sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was futile, inadequate. And in its futility, it pointed to the fact that there had to somehow, some way, someday, someone would be a full and final sacrifice that would once and for all do away with sin. So the whole sacrificial system simply pointed to a Messiah, to Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of Moses. Guess what? That's the gospel of Paul. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of the New Testament. You see how it all ties together? Now with this understanding of the Old Testament, do you understand now why Jesus had to say to his audience, you have heard it said, but I say to you, because they forgot that God's standard was the heart. You love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as well. But you see, they lowered the standard. Because they forgot all of this, they could content themselves with simply focusing on the outside or the external. They would go through the motions, devoid of the heart. But God was always watching the inside, the heart. Well, why? Because it's a relationship of love that God wants. And the laws he gives, the Ten Commandments and all those regulations and so on, they simply regulate how we love him in return. And so when you come to the New Testament and you find in Matthew 22, Jesus answering the question, which is the greatest commandment, you should not be surprised at his answer, which is, of course, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, I want to make sure you understand this because because of their externally focused religion, and quite frankly, our externally focused religion, because it's so easy to fall into this trap, those types of religions completely ignore the heart attitude and focus only on the act. Jesus, in essence, is saying to his audience in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't care about your religious performance if you don't love God and love your neighbor. If you're going through the motions, you've missed the point. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians. It's all throughout the New Testament, by the way. Here's a few examples. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have 
Love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move, remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Watch this. Jesus says the same thing to the rich young ruler. Remember this story, Matthew 19, 16 and 22? Someone came to him, a rich young ruler, and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He said to him, why are you asking about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, meaning eternal life, keep the commandments. See, he could say that. Because if you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved your neighbors yourself, you're in. That's good. Who said you're in? You're good. Which, by the way, they could say, remember the, 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 the man who was in hell, Abraham's bosom, the whole story? Like, oh, please, tell my brothers, you know, warn them what's coming. He says, no, they have what, he says. Moses and the law and the prophets. That's enough. You see? Because it's the same. They said to him, which comes? Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness on your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. So that's the last six uh, of the Ten Commandments. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And of course, the man does what? If you know the story, he walks away. Let me paraphrase what Jesus is really saying to this rich young ruler. It's wonderful that you've kept all the commandments from your youth, but you know what you haven't done? You haven't loved your neighbor. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and in doing so, you will manifest the right heart attitude and show that you love your neighbor. You see that? See, all of his external behavior, there was nothing going on in the inside. I mean, you know what God thinks of that kind of, 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 of worship? of that kind of religious behavior? Well, I'm gonna tell you. Get your Bibles out. Isaiah 29, verses nine through 13. Isaiah 29, nine through 13. I kept easy for you. You're kind of in the Deuteronomy, now you're gonna go to the right of your Bible. <laughs> or open up to the middle and go to the right a little bit, and there you'll find Isaiah. What does God think of a worship that there's really nothing going on in the heart? Well, it brings judgment. And I hope this scares you a little bit because we can do this every Sunday. This is what he says. Isaiah 29, 9-13. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. I hear pages Moving you sing any more time? Okay. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out 
upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When you give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. So in other words, the judgment was going to come no matter what. I can warn you of it, give it to you in a book, but you wouldn't be able to read it because it's sealed. Or I'd give it to someone else to read it and say, I can't read. The judgment was set in stone. It was going to happen. What in the world was so bad? What were the people done that secured this judgment from God? And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but what? While their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. God has always wanted a people who obey his commands from the heart. Because they want to. Why? Because they love him. See, his law it's not a set of rules and commands that we begrudgingly obey. You know, instead, they are expressions of love. And let me show you. Let's talk about expressions of love. Go to Exodus chapter 20. Again, Jesus said the whole law and the prophets depend on two commands. And what are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, it's changed now by Jesus. You don't love them as yourself. You love them as Christ would love them. So let's take the Ten Commandments. And I want you to start to think of them as expressions of love. Now, did you know that the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments relate to God? The last six relate to your neighbor. So the first four tell you how to love God. Makes sense, right? Because what's the goal of life? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. God first, so there it is. First four are about God. The last six tell you how you can love your neighbor. Because again, you love the Lord your God, you love your neighbor. The whole law and prophets is summed up in those two commands. So the Ten Commandments, folks, are nothing more than a definition of love. Let me show you. Exodus 20, 1 through 3. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You know what that's saying about love? Love is loyal. Love is loyal. Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know what that's saying? Love is faithful. Love will not go off, make a carved replica of some other non-God. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Love is reverent. 
Because love is loyal, and loyalty extends into faithfulness, which in turn leads to reverence. You see that? Verses 8 and through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Love is what? It's set apart. If I love somebody totally, I'm set apart to that person only. God doesn't date in like open dating. He's an exclusive dater, okay? In essence, think of it that way. He's committed to you and wants you to be committed to him. You're set apart for me. So that's how we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you love the Lord your God, you're going to be loyal. If you love the Lord your God, you're going to be faithful. If you love the Lord your God, you're going to be reverent. And if you love the Lord your God, you're going to be set apart to him. Amen? All right, let's take a look how we can love our neighbor. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Love is respectful, right? By the way, see who gets this question right. Who was your first neighbor? Do you guys remember your first neighbor? Who was your first neighbor? It's your family, right? It was your mother, your father, the family unit. That's your first neighbor. That's the family you're born into. That's, your first, that's the first neighboring unit. So naturally, he says you're to honor and respect your parents. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Love is humane. Obviously, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to take his or her life. Verse 14, you should not commit adultery. Love is pure. It doesn't defile, but always seeks purity. You shall not steal. Love is unselfish. If you love your neighbor, will you take what they have? No. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Love is truthful. It doesn't gossip, doesn't tell lies about people. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, what's that saying about love? Love is content. See, when you really, really love God and are loving your neighbors, you're content with what God has given you, and you're glad for what your neighbor has, even if you don't have it. Right? So love towards your neighbor is respectful, humane, pure, unselfish, truthful, and contented. Now do you see the point of the Ten Commandments, folks? You need to interpret the Old Testament, the entire Bible, through those two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. They are not rules we begrudgingly obey. They are opportunities for you to express your love. And once God established a relationship of love with his people, 
He gave them the law, which defined how they were to love towards God and towards your neighbor. That's the message of Deuteronomy. That's the message of the Old Testament. That's the gospel of Moses. It's the same message of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the message of Paul. It's the message of the entire New Testament. So the whole law is to love God and love your neighbor. And that expresses itself towards God in being loyal, faithful, reverent, and set apart. It expresses itself towards your neighbor in respecting authority established by God, respecting life made in his image, being pure, unselfish, truthful, and contented. Folks, every single one of those commandments, what I just described to you through the angle of love, is a heart motive. But what if my love for God has weakened by the busyness of life, the trials I go through, and circumstances, and so on? How do I recapture my love for God? Since that's the goal of life, well, here's what you do. This is what he said to the church in Ephesus. Remember this? I know your deeds. This is Jesus speaking. Your toll and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. I mean, they've done a lot of good things. And you have perseverance, you've endured for my name's sake, you have not grown weary, but this they have against you. And this is serious, folks. And I hope you understand a little bit more now why it is so serious. They left their first love. In other words, they were going to church and doing what? Going to the motions. Therefore, and I think I underlined them, yeah, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lamp saying out of its place unless you repent. So what do you do? Remember what it was like when you were in love with God. Repent of your sin. Repeat. Do the same things you were doing when you were in love with the Lord. It was genuine. You desired to be with him. You desired to obey him. And how do you cultivate this kind of relationship? How do you stoke the flames of love? What have I been telling you from the day one since I got here? You gotta spend time with him. You gotta cultivate it. You gotta get to know him. You gotta read your Bible. You gotta pray. You gotta spend extended time with him. Love him. And so it's a very practical point here to help you with this. If you haven't done this before, I think you'll find it fascinating and helpful. Just simply take a walk with God this week. Maybe not your, your normal quiet time or time with him where you read your Bible and pray and kind of get it out of your schedule so you can go on with what's more important in your day, right? That's how we think. No, 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 just go for a walk. Because when you're in love with somebody, you like just to go and be with them and walk with them, right? Do that and just talk with him. Maybe that will help rekindle some of that love for God. Because really, this is what Jesus is saying throughout all of his Sermon on the Mount. I'm looking at the heart, and if you're even angry, you're worthy of being sentenced to death. If you haven't had the thought of adultery, you're an adulterer. See, it all goes back to the heart. Do you understand now why it's always been the heart? It has always been that way from the very beginning. And we miss that from the Old Testament because we view the Old Testament wrong. 
Life is about loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then demonstrating that love to others. By the way, you, are, you pray to be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit, right? We call it the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but for what purpose? So that Jesus Christ may be Lord of your, of your heart, he's comfortable within your life, and what's the next thing that happens after that? You're rooted and grounded in love. It means that Jesus lives his life through you and his life is a life of love because God is love. And then after that, then you're filled with all the fullness of God. Then God can say, okay, I can work through you and do things that are exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or imagine. And so what I'm basically saying to you is if you're going to love him, you need the help of the Holy Spirit. You need to re-surrender to his in your life. Don't hold back any air of your heart. Give it to God. Because when you look at your heart, that's God's standard. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the words I hope that built up the body of Christ that you brought here this morning. I thank you for everybody that's here. I pray that we have a really good week and that we would deepen our love for you, that any heart that has, has grown cold towards you or, or maybe we're simply going through the motions and we don't like it, that we would repent of our ways and seek you and find you and fall in love with you all over again. Thank you that for opening our eyes and show us that your commandments are really opportunities for us to express our love for you because you've done so much for us and you're just a good God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.